Go ahead and get your Bibles out, and we're going to get right into it. Ephesians chapter 6, we're finishing up this section that has been four weeks. It was only supposed to be one, but it's the section on spiritual warfare. Uh, we've talked a lot about how we're engaged in it, whether we know it or not. Every aspect of our lives is basically this encounter with forces that we can't see. And, and we've talked a lot about what our enemy looks like and what kind of tactics he uses against us and how it's not hard power, it's soft power. It's, his tactics are with ideas and with deception and leading us from reality into the shadows. Um, and, and we talked about how once you take that red pill and you see reality for what it is, you can't help but be engaged in it. And it's been a really hopefully encouraging and challenging uh, study. But one of the most important things we have to understand as we move forward, as we wrap up this whole section on war, is that on our own, um, even as we put all of this armor on, the, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the, the boots that are ready for the gospel and the sword of the spirit and, and the helmet of salvation, all these, if, if we move into this war by ourselves, we're going to get cut down. Like we absolutely cannot do this on our own. Left to ourselves, the battle with the God of this age. We talked about how powerful he is, how his, his power like spans the whole um, globe, that he roams around like a lion marking his territory because it's his. If we go after this on our own, um, we will be cut down. It's an impossible task. If we were talking about a battle with other people, like other like flesh and blood beings, then maybe the odds could be stacked against us. Maybe they would be stronger. Maybe we'd be outnumbered and maybe they'd be smarter than us, but we'd still have a chance. I, I always think back like one of the greatest upsets in all of history, the Miracle on Ice, 1980. Olympics and our little amateurs, our college students went up against the Soviet, the Red Army, and they were like the best hockey team ever. And they were stronger than us, they were better than us, they were more experienced than us, and yet somehow we pulled off this incredible upset. The odds weren't insurmountable. Upsets are always possible as long as we're going up against other people, other flesh and blood. But since our battle isn't against flesh and blood, which Paul says at the beginning, our battle's not against flesh and blood. It's not against other people. An upset isn't just unlikely, it is absolutely impossible. We can't outsmart, overpower, outnumber, or upset the devil and his armies. They're too powerful, they're too crafty, they're too cunning. And so going up against them and our own strength, even with all of this armor, is absolutely hopeless. So if we want to have a chance, like for any kind of survival, let alone victory, we need something beyond flesh and blood to help us. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. Any Lord of the Rings fans out there, you don't need to be shy. Don't be ashamed of that. Okay? It's okay to be a nerd. Um, we're, we're not as nerdy as Star Wars people. Amen? Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Lord of the Rings, I just, I always picture spiritual warfare in light of Lord of the Rings, even though spiritual warfare isn't physical. But I just imagine our, our battle and like the scene that's being laid out is like we're a bunch of little hobbits 
which are like halflings. And they have big hairy feet. And they like to smoke a lot. Um, and they're just very laid back and chill. There's not like a violent, aggressive bone in their bodies. And I just imagine us, like these little hobbits, smoking and having fun. Um, not that we would actually do that because it's illegal. Um, but we're lined up against an army of like 100,000 devilish beings called orcs. If you've seen the movies, you know what I'm talking about. They're, they're disgusting, they're huge, they're powerful, they're strong. And in my Lord of the Rings mind, when I think about spiritual warfare, I think about this. Like, we're little hobbitses, and they are big, mean orcs, and we're going to get demolished. Unless, unless, like, in the two towers, Gandalf the White comes riding in on that white stallion with like this ray of light with all of his eagles and all of his forces and and all of the orcs run away unless we have help it's it's impossible but as soon as the help arrives everything changes that's really what the apostle paul wants you and i to see today the most positive and in the most profound way that we could possibly imagine because God hasn't just given us things. He hasn't just given us things like the belt of truth and the, the breastplate of righteousness and, and, and faith and, and, and all of these different things. He's actually given us himself. He's given us the presence of his very spirit to ensure that nothing will be able to shake us. Look at his words with me, starting in verse 16 of chapter 6, or maybe 17, I can't remember, but look at the text with me. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. See, the Spirit of God is, is the help that we've been given, but the Spirit of God is probably the most misunderstood concept and and all of our Christian faith. And I say concept not because he is a concept, but because that's how we think of him. We think of him as if he's like a, a, a force, like for all of you Star Wars people. Uh, I was actually talking to Tanner this past week. Like how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, when you think about the Holy Spirit, you think of him as if he's like this force that you've got to somehow tap into. Again, like in, in Star Wars, which I'm not a Star Wars guy, but this force that exists in the universe, if you can somehow tap into it, you can make things levitate and, and you can fly planes really good and, um, and you can do all of this stuff. And, and the Holy Spirit's kind of like that. If you can just tap into this force, you can move mountains. If you tap into this force, then, man, that promotion that you want, like it's coming. It's almost like the law of attraction, but it's, it's the Holy Spirit. Just speak to the universe or like speak to the Spirit somehow and, and all this good stuff's going to happen. Anybody think of the Holy Spirit like that? It's okay. You don't have to raise your hand. We've all been there. I've been there. You're not exactly sure how it works, but it's something weird that you can't understand. But that's not how Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit. Jesus talked about him as if he was a person. Look at a few examples. John 14, 16. He's talking to his disciples right before he's arrested. He said, I'm going to ask the Father, and he will send you another helper to be with you forever. And that helper is the spirit of truth. John 15, 26, 27. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, 
who proceeds from the Father will bear witness about me. I, I hope you're noticing these, these common things. He's a helper and he's a spirit of truth. Remember, our enemy is the father of lies. Okay, so they go together here. John 16, 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Could you imagine Jesus saying that to you? Like we're hanging out, we're best friends, we do everything together. We travel together, we talk together, we eat together. We do everything for three and a half years and then Jesus says, you know what, it's actually so much better if I leave because if I don't leave, you don't get the helper. So who's the helper and why is it so great? Well, all three of these passages call him the helper and that Greek word, helper, is, is paraclete. Paraclete is really important because paraclete is actually a, a name or a word that was used in warfare. Paraclete was a term that was used to describe ancient warriors. Some Bibles translate this word comforter. And yes, the Holy Spirit comforts, but a paraclete is, is a warrior. You see, when Greek sh- soldiers went into battle, they went in in twos. They went in as pairs. And they did this so that when the enemy attacked, they could get together, they could get back to back, and they could guard each other's blind spots, and they could fight back to back. You've seen this, I'm sure, in in movies or whatever. The word or name that was used to describe the soldier's battle partner was paraclete. That's what the helper is. It's someone who goes in with you side by side to stand back to back so that no one can get you. You fight together as warriors. So when Jesus said he's going to send us his, help, his spirit to be our helper, what he means is that he's, he's going to go into battle with us. He's not just sending us in with this armor, like Saul tried to give his armor to David. No, he's, he's going in with us, side by side, back to back. The Holy Spirit is our battle partner. And if God is fighting for us, what does Romans 8 tell us? If God is with us, who in the world could ever stand against us? So again, to go back to my Lord of the Rings imagery, right? We're a bunch of little hobbits and there's like hundreds of thousands of orcs. But with God with us, all of a sudden, they're not trying to overtake us. They turn and run. They can't stand in his presence. They're afraid of him. It's like every time Jesus showed up and and there was a demon-possessed person, they got really afraid And Jesus would tell them to to leave or to shut up or to get out, and they obeyed immediately. They can't stand in his presence. One of my favorite movies is uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, favorite favorite book series by C.S. Lewis, uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, We introduced our kids to this, not because it's like, you know, really a good kid movie, but because it's the gospel and we want to like teach them the gospel. And there's this scene where the witch is standing before Aslan at the, at cam- at the camp and she's trying to claim Edmund. And she quotes the, the deep magic and she says, you know, you have a traitor among you and, and you know what the, the law says. If you don't give that traitor to me, then all of Narnia will crumble and, and decay. And then Aslan says, don't quote the deep magic to me. I was there when it was written. And then she just like gets really afraid and shuts up. And that's what all of the spiritual forces of darkness do whenever God is speaking with authority. They can't stand in his presence. They're afraid of him. They think they're fighting. They think they're slapping him in the face. But as soon as he roars, it's like, oh no, leave me alone. 
what does the Son of God have to do with me? And this is the God who's going into battle with us as our paraclete, as our helper. Guys, this is great news. But there is a massive problem. Most of us go into battle on a daily basis without the Spirit. God says, hey, I'm sending you this helper. He's going to go in with you. You're going to fight back to back as warriors. And we're just like, eh. (laughs) We go out in our daily lives as if we can manage the temptations of our flesh, the attacks of our enemy with our own strength and in our own power. Do we not? I know I do. We leave him behind. Now, maybe you're thinking theologically that's not possible. Ephesians 1. We looked at that a long time ago, right? But Ephesians 1 says that we're sealed with the Spirit. That when, when Jesus redeems us and forgives us and he rescues us from sin, immediately we get his Spirit. So how do you, how do you leave something behind that's been given to you as a seal, as a guarantee? How does, that, how does that happen? That's a promise. Well, what we've seen over and over in this letter is that It's actually possible to have the Holy Spirit and not partake in him. It's possible to have the Holy Spirit, to possess him and not experience his presence. To not be filled with the Spirit. To not know the intimacy and the power and the joy that comes from communion with him. Theologically, this is the difference between being baptized by the Holy Spirit and being filled by the Holy Spirit. And this is, there's a lot of confusion around this, but let me just kind of lay it out for you in like the clearest way I possibly can. Throughout Scripture, baptism is always you and me getting all of God. So when you're redeemed, when you're rescued, you, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he gives you his Spirit and he gives you all of his Spirit you possess him, but filling is when God gets all of us. In other words, baptism is a once-in-a-lifetime moment in your life, the moment that God saves you, and it's, it's powerful. Filling, though, is an experience that grows, and it, it grows, and it keeps on growing as you walk with the Spirit. It never ends. It never stops. It's not that we'll possess more of his presence. It's that we'll partake in more of his presence. There's a huge distinction there. Is there not? You felt this in your own life, haven't you? To know that you're saved, to know that you've been forgiven and not feel the presence of God because you're not walking with the Spirit. This is why the Apostle Paul prays twice in this letter that the believers, the Christians, would be filled with the fullness of God. Because it's possible to believe and, and at the same time not know his fullness. This is why I prayed twice that they would grow in their experiences of his power. The problem, though, and man, I, I don't even think I need to say this because you know the problem. You feel the problem. You walked in with the problem. But the problem is that most Christians never move deeper into that experience. We go into battle 
without any participation with that presence and power. I have a couple bowls of, of water here to illustrate what I'm talking about. You can pretend that these bowls are your life and the water inside of them kind of represent your inner being, your, your heart, your mind, your will, those things that lead you to action. And the truth that we've seen in Ephesians chapter 1 is that once you are saved, again, like I've just said, once you're forgiven and redeemed, like you get the Holy Spirit. I have a packet of Alka-Seltzer here, okay? I don't even know what this is for, but Alka-Seltzer exists, and it's like for science projects, I guess. Um, but I, I have a packet of Alka-Seltzer. Pain relief. Okay, got it. Um, let's just pretend, for the sake of this illustration, that this is the Holy Spirit. So the moment that you are redeemed and forgiven, um, you get all of the Holy Spirit. Like, I didn't take any of that off. I didn't give you half. There, there's two little Alka-Seltzers in there. You got both of them, okay? You get all of the Holy Spirit. And, and as soon as he enters into your life, like, the composition changes. I'm not a scientist, but I know that if I just put that plastic in that water, like something changes. And, and you could probably get a microscope out and tell me all about it. Um, immediately, he starts doing work in you. But it's slow. It's, it's gradual. It's hard to see. Maybe over time, we'd see a, a lot of things happen. Maybe over time, the water would change color and, and all of that kind of stuff. But it's, it's, it's almost invisible. But what happens when I, when I open the packet? You guys excited? <laughs> this is what happens. It's an immediate reaction, immediate filling. It's, it's dramatic. It's, it, it, if my son were in here, he'd be like eating this thing up right now. Like it's science. Something happens like when, when you open the package, you have the same two cubes of Alka-Seltzer, right? And, and yet one is unopened. One is still in the package and the other is released. And when it's released, it fills your entire being so that your heart is consumed, your mind is consumed, your will is consumed, and now you become the type of person who does the things and loves the things that God loves. You guys see the difference, right? The reason this is such a huge deal is because I think in many ways, most of us live this kind of life. We experience God in this kind of way, which is why when we go out into battle, we get cut down almost instantly. That's why we, we every single day, minute after minute after minute, get tripped up by the, by the sin that entangles us. It's why we don't experience freedom. It's why we don't understand what victory actually is. It's because we've still got this packet unopened. This is such a huge deal, guys, because what Paul has opened our eyes to is the fact that even though we can't see it, every day our enemy is hurling flaming arrows at us. Lies, deceptions, false realities, convincing us to sin, but not only to sin, but once we sin, convincing us that we can't be used or loved by God anymore. 
every single day, cunning schemes, every single day, all kinds of sweet-sounding lies. Jesus gave us a helper. He gave us a paraclete. He gave us a battle companion, but we've hidden him away so deep inside that we can't feel him. We can't sense him, let alone let him fight with us. Does that sound like you? Does that sound like your Christian life? Man, I've told you that this has been me for most of my Christian life. I know what a powerless faith is. I know what a prayerless faith is. I mean, I, I, we've talked about this for the past few months in this letter to the, to the Ephesians. I know what it means to not have victory over sin. I know what it means to live in chains and still be a son of God. Anybody else there? I know what it means to see the truth but keep going back to the lie. That has been me for most of my Christian life. But there's so much more. It's no wonder that so many of us are deceived by the devil's lies. So many are tripped up by sin over and over and over again. Guys, another helpful passage that I would encourage you to study on your own time, maybe when you go home. This is kind of the difference between Romans 7 and Romans 8. And I know that there's a lot of debate about this, but I believe that Romans 7 is all about this kind of Christian life. Look at what Paul says in Romans 7. He says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Again, he's talking about his flesh. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do, I keep on doing. That's this kind of life. Anybody else raise your hand to that? But then in the very next chapter, in Romans chapter 8, He shows us what it looks like to walk with the Spirit, to open Him up and let Him consume your entire life, and it's the total opposite. And I don't have time to read all of Romans 8, so read it when you get home, but it is resurrection power. It's freedom and victory and peace and confidence and hope. It's it's all-consuming. And Paul is essentially saying, this is the normal experience when you try to live in your own strength and you're trying to defeat the flesh according to the flesh, but we've been given a helper and when you walk with him, everything changes. The question I'm going to ask you today is, which one are you? Right now, are you constantly being overtaken by the devil's schemes? Or are you the one who is overtaking them with truth? Are you killing sin or is sin still killing you? Slowly but surely, wearing you thin. Are you finding yourself locked in the chains of fear and anxiety and addiction? Or are you living in the freedom of all of the liberty and joy that Christ bought for you on the cross. Guys, what if when God saved us, (laughs) he didn't just intend on giving us an experience of his power and freedom after we died and went to heaven? Everyone's always looking forward to heaven. Yeah, I am too, rightfully so. 
What if God wants us to experience and enjoy life in him now before we get there? That life of freedom, purpose, victory, hope, contentment, joy, meaning, all of those things. What if that's what he designed for us here and now? Everything would change, wouldn't it? And so now the big question is, as we close out this section on spiritual warfare, is how in the world do we do that? How in the world do we walk with the Spirit? How do we move from this to that? And this is not rocket science. We've talked about this for the last few months, and I'll just talk about it again, and I'm not going to belabor it. How do we ensure that we're going into battle with the Spirit by our side and at our back, not somewhere in our dust? That's what Paul wants to show us today. Look again at Ephesians chapter 6. There are two things. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Paul tells us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 describes it like this. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. In other words, the Word of God is so powerful so insightful that it has the ability to discern and expose not just your deepest desires, but the deepest desires of every creature that's ever been created, including the devil, including our enemy. The word of God exposes with truth. It's the weapon that the Spirit uses in our lives to show us reality and then invite us into it. The thing is that you and I actually have to let him lead. We actually have to let him convict. We have to let him empower and and produce fruit in us. You see, it's possible to read the word and at the same time quench the spirit because every time you read the word, there's a decision that has to be made. Am I going to obey this and trust this or not? And so the first way that we walk with the spirit is by trusting and obeying his word. When he exposes sin in us, we don't just move on as if everything's okay. We do something about it. We trust that he's right. Even if we don't see it, we trust he knows what's best, and then we submit to it, and we obey it. James 1.22 talks about how people who, who do the opposite are like people who look in a mirror and see all kinds of blemishes and flaws and jacked up hair and food in the teeth and and all of this kind of stuff, and then they just walk away as if everything's fine and good. People who go into Scripture and see a mirror of their soul and have the sword pierce them and say, this is who you are. This is where you are. This is what God sees, and this is what God expects, and then just move away as if nothing's wrong, or like people who look in a mirror and don't really care about fixing anything. But if you want to be filled with the Spirit, then when he takes the sword and he pierces you with it, and and it feels bad. It feels like a piercing, right? But when he pierces you with it, you trust that he's doing it for your good. 
You ever had a friend tell you something that was really hard but it was true because they loved you and they wanted to help you? That's what the word of God is. It's our heavenly father looking into our souls and saying, this is where you are. This is what's true about you. But if you change this, there's something on the other side of your obedience that can only be described as blessing. I can remember um, when I was in college, I had a class that was all about uh, personal discipline and spiritual discipline. I went to a, a Christian college. I was studying to be a pastor, so it was like a unique class. You would never take this anywhere else. <laughs> and uh, along with all of like the reading and the coursework and everything, one of our assignments was to basically choose from a list of 20, 20 things. We had to choose two big projects. They were like the weirdest things in the world, and a lot of them were really hard. One of them, to me, looked like the easiest choice on the list, you had to spend a weekend in the professor's attic and just read your Bible and pray. Now, it was a finished attic. There was a bed. There was a bathroom. And I remember thinking, like, that's going to be the easiest one. I won't have to read a book. I won't have to write a paper. I'm just going to go hang out in this guy's attic for two days and read my Bible. So I get, I get to, the, to the attic, and, um, and it's, like, quiet, which I'm not used to, and there's nobody there. And I'm there for a few hours, it's time for dinner, and I'm like thinking he's going to slide me a plate of food under the door. And I don't know why I thought that, but I just thought he was going to feed me. It was never like included in the description that it was like a fasting thing. And no food ever came. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like, I'm going to be foodless for three days or two days, I can't remember how long it was. And, uh, and so like the first day was pretty rough, because all I could think about was my belly. And I was just fantasizing about food, and I was thinking about all the restaurants I was going to eat. I had never fasted before in my life. And then after I kind of got over that a little bit, I actually started reading my Bible. And uh, I went to some different passages, and they were, they were passages that I had never read before. And, and one of them was in Ephesians that we've already, we already looked at a little bit, but it was about sexual humor. So uh, I'm a junior in college. Um, I'm in college dorm life and soccer team and locker room and movies and, and all of that kind of stuff. And like sexual humor is just like a guy thing, right? Right? Donald Trump, right? Um, we excuse it all the time, but it's just like what you do. Um, and I remember I was sitting in this attic starving and I, I saw this passage and it, and it said that those I'm, I'm paraphrasing right now. But those who, who laugh at sexual immorality, crude joking, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. <laughs> and I remember like, what? And I got scared. And my heart started beating like really fast because I was like, I, I laugh at this stuff all the time. Like, well, I don't want to inherit the kingdom of God. And in that moment, there was a decision that had to be made. Like, I'm in a college preparing to be a pastor, <laughs> and I'm studying the scriptures, but somehow, like, there was this dichotomy, and whatever, and at that moment, I decided, am I going to laugh at this stuff anymore? And I remember, I, 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 in that moment, asked God to help me. Now, I didn't become perfect right away, but I remember going back to my dorm, and immediately, like, immediately, 
having to make a decision. Am I going to laugh at this again or am I not? And I chose not to, and it was incredibly awkward, and I got made fun of. (laughs) In my Christian school with a bunch of other guys preparing to be pastors in a men's dorm. Now, in that moment, like, I couldn't really see how this was a good thing. I couldn't really see how this was going to benefit me in any way. If anything, it just led to ridicule. But I had to pray and ask the Lord, God, show me that if I just obey you, there's going to be a blessing that comes from this. That I'm going to know you in a deeper way. In a way that I haven't known you before. A much more profound example of this is, is a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield, if you don't know her story, was um, a leading uh, feminist author, professor of English and queer theory at Syracuse University. She actually advised the LGBT student group um, for Syracuse. She wrote Syracuse University's policy for same-sex couples. She actively lobbied for LGBT aims alongside her uh, lesbian partner of 11 years. And her autobiography, which Eventually, we'll we'll probably have here in the book nook. It's really um, powerful. But her autobiography is called Secret Confessions of an Unlikely Convert. And it just explains her process uh, that she went through before finally giving her life to Christ. And as you can imagine, it was a very difficult process. It was a process that required a lot of time and work. Like, we're talking about years, years. One of the most significant and difficult aspects of that process was trusting and obeying what God said about her identity and her sexuality. She talks about how she tried everything she possibly could to work around it because she couldn't see how obeying God in that area would lead to anything good in her life. If anything, it would would ruin everything. It would require her to lose everything she'd ever loved and worked for. Look at how she described it. If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. That's a verse she's quoting. This verse exposed the quicksand in which my feet were stuck. I was a thinker. I was paid to read books and write about them. And I expected that in all areas of my life, understanding came before obedience, not the other way around. I wanted God to show me on my terms why homosexuality was a sin. I wanted to be the judge, not the one being judged. Perhaps I thought like Eve in the garden. I wanted to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that I could become and replace God. And I wondered, hadn't I already done this? Hadn't we all? If my consciousness fell in Adam's sin, as the Bible purports, no wonder I couldn't think my way out of this quandary. This wasn't a game of thinking and matching wits. Could I echo God's call for obedience? That was the question. Could I will to do God's will just this once? The stakes were so very high because they always are. But the verse promised understanding after obedience. And I wrestled with the question, did I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view? Or did I just want to argue with him? I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I understood. Starting with my own sexuality was too scary. It was too impossible, so I, just, I decided to start with Jesus. I prayed that God would be pleased to reveal his son in me. I prayed that I would be a vessel 
of Jesus. For Rosaria, she wanted to understand before she obeyed. She wanted to know how obedience would lead to her blessing, how giving up everything she held dear, everything that she had worked for, would lead to a new experience of satisfaction and joy, how submitting to the word of God would somehow change her for the better. And yet at that moment of decision, she asked God to help her simply trust and obey. And throughout the rest of the book, she writes about the presence and the power of God that she would come to experience as a result of her obedience. Significantly, that she would not have known if she had closed the book and done her own thing. The truth is, guys, while it might not be gender and it might not be sexuality, every single one of us have something that we are holding on to. And when we go to Scripture and it pierces us, we have to make a decision, even though I don't understand why, even though I don't understand how this is going to lead to blessing, even though this is going to lead to ridicule, it's going to lead to loss, it's going to change every aspect of my life, I know I have to trust and obey because understanding comes after obedience. What is it for you? What are you holding on to? If you want to be filled with the Spirit, to take Him into battle with you, it starts with trusting and obeying as He pierces you with that mighty weapon. As He puts the mirror in front of you and says, I want to make you better. I want to make you new. The promise is that understanding does come. And that leads to the second thing that Paul says we have to do if we want to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit fills us as we cry out to God in prayer. Look back at the text. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. One author put it this way, prayer is the power that wields the weapon. Prayer is the power that wields the weapon of the Word. In other words, God has put his word into the hand of prayer. You can read the Bible and you can see what needs to be done, but until you cry out to God for help, you will absolutely be helpless to carry it out. Prayer is the power and God is the source of everything. One of my favorite descriptions of prayer is that it's like a wartime walkie-talkie, and I got this from John Piper. If you've ever seen a war movie or maybe like Band of Brothers or whatever, you know that when the, the troops are on the front line, there's always a guy with a backpack that's got a telecom system, and whenever they're in trouble or whenever they need to report something back to the general, they just like pull this phone off this guy's backpack and they, they call back to the general. They're able to say, hey, this is what's going on on the front lines. This is what we're up against. But more importantly, not just reporting things, they're able to say, this is what we need. We're under heavy fire. Let me give you some coordinates so that you can send planes and blow those people up. That, that's what the telecom system was. Prayer in a lot of ways is like that kind of system. It's not just a system that's been put in place so that we can tell God everything that's going on. I mean, that's important, and he loves to hear that. That's good. But more importantly than that, it actually enables us to tell him what we need. Say, God, I, I just read this thing in Scripture that is too hard for me. 
I can't do this. I need some support. God, I'm, I'm facing a, a temptation. I'm facing a decision. I'm facing a lie, and I'm believing it. I need your support. Send your plane. Send your spirit. Come and work so I believe and obey. Trust and obedience is required, but guys, trust and obedience doesn't happen unless he empowers you to do it. Most of us think that prayer is kind of something that happens in the comfort of our own homes with a, a nice cup of coffee, and that's good. And yes, absolutely <laughs> amazing. But once you take the red pill, you realize that even drinking coffee in the comfort of your own home is actually a scene of a raging battle. And so every time we're talking to God, we're never removed from the front lines. We're always engaged. Every time we pick up our cell phone, guys, that is the front lines of this battle. And we are being preached a gospel of what the good life is and what the kingdom looks like and what satisfaction looks like and perfection looks like. And, and the devil is giving us lies. And so every time we engage that, we need help to interpret it correctly so that we don't believe it, get caught up into it. There's no such thing as the comfort of your own home, guys. <laughs> because everything that you're doing is doing something to you. Every single thing that you do is doing something to your heart. It's shaping you. Every time you pick up your phone, you're telling something to your brain, to your intellect, about God and the world and you and the good life. So we're always on guard point is, guys, if you want to go into battle with the Holy Spirit by your side, you have to be praying and praying like your life depends on it. Listen to how Piper concluded this thought. He said, I have been impressed more than ever before that God has given us prayer not as an intercom for increased convenience in our secluded cottages, but as a walkie-talkie connecting the general's headquarters with a transportation line and the field hospital, hospital and the frontline artillery. What has become clear to me in recent days is that many of our problems with prayer and much of our weakness in prayer comes from the fact that we are not all on active duty, and yet we still try to use the transmitter. We have taken a wartime walkie-talkie and tried to turn it into a civilian intercom. That's a really powerful image for me. It's not a civilian intercom. It's a wartime walkie-talkie. It is the power that was given to us for battle. And so we use it as such. It's what enables us to believe the word of God and submit to the truths found in it. It enables us to trust the God behind it. It's what enables us to stand firm in the midst of the devil's attacks. Guys, the spirit is ready for battle. Like he is ready to go in and fight you look at the Old Testament, God loves fighting his kids' battles. He's ready to fight yours. He will not let you down. So as we go into this battle together with our shields locked like we saw a couple of weeks ago, 
we need to remember that we're not going in alone. We've got the God of the universe, the power that raised Christ from the dead in us. And so we can be victorious. Amen? We have a great and mighty helper. He's the author. He's the finisher of our faith. And he's promised to fight for us. So friends, let us walk with him today. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your spirit. And yet at the same time, we confess that more often than not, we neglect him and forget him. We try to fight in our own strength. Thank you for the reminder today from this letter to a church that hasn't been around for a long time, that you've given us yourself, that you are going to go into battle with us and fight for us. Thank you for the hope and the freedom and the confidence that we have because of that. So help us to walk with you today. Help us to trust you today. We beg you, we cry out to you for help because we need your power. We cannot obey you without your power. God, we want to be filled with your fullness. We want to know what it means to be consumed by you, to taste and see that you are good, to experience you in a tangible way, in a real way, in an intimate way, in a way that transcends everything else that this life has to offer. Would you come even now and fill us as we submit our wills to yours, as we respond to the truth that we've heard? For your glory, amen.